0: Well, it is a pleasure to be here this morning. We're going to carry on uh, where uh, Pastor left off in Acts chapter 12. Let's have a word of prayer as we open God's Word. Father, thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to open your Word now. Uh, It's just been great to sing praise to you. And now, Lord, we just want to continue to hear from you by your Spirit. Illuminate the Word to us, Lord. Help us to see Christ in it. And, Lord, we want, again, we want to leave this place having genuinely worshipped you. And so, Lord, speak to our heart. Use your word and just pierce us and, and cause us, Lord, just to, to react and respond to you from the word. And we just want to hear from you now, Father, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So take your Bibles and turn over to Acts chapter 12. And we're just going to look at the last couple verses, uh, 20 to 24, both be 25, but I'll leave that one. So 24, 20 to 24. Um, and we're going to carry on where... Chapter 12 talked about uh, Herod and the response that Herod had um, to the growing church. Now, One of the things I always do when I offer, I talk to new believers or, or university students. Um, for a couple of years, I was uh, chaplain at Queen's University, so I did Power to Change and Youth for Christ and all those groups. Um, whenever I talk to the young people, I'd always try to get them to realize some basic things about who God is and what God is is like because we have such a sometimes the wrong concept that god is some giant being way up in the sky that doesn't really uh, know me or or is involved in my life and i always wanted to understand that god is extremely intimate to us he's very personal to his children Uh, the word of god says that, that the lord grieves when we grieve and isaiah talked about the fact in isaiah 24 that the lord contends with those who contend against us in other words he, he fights against those who fight us and we need to realize that god is very intimate and personal sometimes we get this idea that god is way up there and we throw him a prayer the odd time and we hope that he hears us and maybe he'll respond but we need to realize that God is a God who is responsive. He does respond to us. Even though he is sovereign over all, God responds to the wickedness of the world and to the needs of his people. And, uh, you know, one of the, the first verses that pop into my mind when I think of that is, you know, is that wonderful verse, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. In other words, our responsibility is to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then... When God sees you do that, and then all these other things shall be added unto you. So in other words, God sees the fact that you love him, that you want to serve him, that you want to put his work forward and that you're living for him. And God looks at you and says, I know life is tough. I know what you're going through, I understand. And yet in the midst of all of that, you really are committed to serving me. Well done, here you go. And so God is a God that is responsive to us. And we've got to realize that. The psalmist David says that the Lord is at my right hand. That's one of the verses that always uh, brings me back to, that God's not way, way, way up there, but the Lord's at my right hand. Now, when I look at my right hand, there it is right there. That means the Lord is never further away from me than right there. That's a terrifying thing when I'm dishonoring God. When I'm not living as God wants me to live and I'm involved in something I should not be involved in, And the Lord is never further than that right there. That's a terrifying thing. But when I need the Lord, when i am going through stress and when I have financial needs and I have all sorts of problems in my life, the fact that the Lord is never further than that just makes me realize the intimacy of what the Lord is. So we're going to look at this passage in chapter 12. So grab your Bibles, turn over to to this passage here. And what we're looking at is how God responds he responds to Herod, and he responds to the church. And they're almost like two very s- extreme ends of the pole. but it's still the response of God. And we need to understand that God is intimate to our needs. Um, because I know that, you don't know me that well, but you know the things that I've gone through, and I know that you've gone through different situations in your life. If we did not have the response of God in our lives we would crumble if we didn't know that the Lord was there for us and, and moving in our lives we wouldn't get through the stresses I don't know how people get through this world I don't know how they do it without having Christ there for them in our lives so in in this passage it starts with chapter 12 and it, it talks about how Herod killed James put him to the sword probably cut his head off now you've gotta remember who Herod was I think Pastor talked about that a little bit last week. At the end of the Old Testament, um, we we get this period starting for 400 years between the last of Malachi and Mark. Mark was the first New Testament book written chronologically. And, And we get this 400 years in there. And during that 400 years, we don't have any content in the Bible, but history tells us that this was a time of world change. First of all, the rise of the Greek Empire, Alexander the Great. Uh, conquered the whole world. And if it wasn't for him, the Apostle Paul couldn't have gone out and done his missionary work. The Bible could not have gone over throughout the whole world, because Alexander the Great spread the Greek language everywhere. So all that was in preparatory for Christ's coming. For Christ to be effective, for the Apostles to be effective, for the Apostle Paul to do his missionary work, there had to be a common language throughout the whole world. And so the Greeks... Uh, God sovereignly led Alexander the Great to do what he did, conquer the world, and put one language everywhere. Uh, And then we had the rise of the Roman Empire and all the things. But but during this time, there was a lot of upheaval in uh, Israel. And we have the rise of what we call the Maccabean periods, where the Maccabees and and eventually the Herodians came along. Uh, Herod was a Jew. He was a descendant of Abraham through Ishmael. We often think, well, you know, the Muslims came through Ishmael. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But so did the Herodian family. And they were the kings under the Roman authority. So they had a very difficult position where they had to keep the people happy and at the same time keep Rome happy. And if Rome saw that there was revolt in in Israel, that there was revolt among the people, they would instantly blame Herod. Like, hey, that's your job, that's your territory, you take care of it. So he was in a position where he had to rule... But he also had to rule in such a way that he kept the people happy so they wouldn't revolt. Um, He also was in a difficult position because of the fact that that he had to exercise authority. And um, there was a number of Herods. So Herod wasn't a person, it was a family name. So Herod the Great, of course, and we'll talk about this in a minute, Herod the Great, um, he's called Herod the Great because they think he did great things. He really was the one that about oh, 35 B.C., came into Jerusalem, and, and, and Jerusalem was in rubble pretty well, and he rebuilt the temple. He rebuilt the city walls. He rebuilt Jerusalem to what Christ would enter into. It was Herod's temple, we call Herod's temple, that Christ went into and threw the money changers out. So Herod did a lot of uh, uh, great things in, su- in, in the sense of building Jerusalem back up so that the Lord could minister there. When, when Herod, and it was Herod the, Herod the Great, uh, who the Magi appear to. And uh, the Magi went to Jerusalem. They did not go to Bethlehem. And uh, they said, not at that time, they said, where is he who was born king of the Jews? And of course, you know, he freaked out over that one. And had every boy two years of age and under killed. And the reason they were two was because it probably was two years after the birth of Jesus that the Magi arrived. Anyways, that's the Christian story. So. But it was, that was Herod the Great. When Herod the Great died, it was his sons that took over in reigning, and it was the sons then who had John the Baptist head cut off. And it was his nephew that we're going to read about here, Herod Antipas the First. Herod Antipas the Second, this guy's son, is to whom the Apostle Paul went to, and the Apostle Paul preached to, and, and he said, uh, thou convinces me almost. So it was a whole family of Herod, so don't think they're all the same guy. This guy here had a major anger problem. And he was in that difficult position of trying to keep everyone happy, but he really was a guy that just had anger issues. So what happened here, the end of, the end of uh, what we looked at last week, they threw Peter in jail and uh, the church was at the same time, they were out there praying for him. And, and I, I believe that they probably genuinely expect Peter to be killed too. I mean, if they kill James, why won't they kill Peter? Right. So they, but however, they were earnestly praying for him, and of course the angel of the Lord came, and the angel of the Lord brought him out of, out of prison. So it says, that, it says this, uh, verse 19, going back to 1219, and after Herod searched for him, which is interesting, why would the king go down into the prisons to look for him? Well, obviously, the very fact that Herod himself left his palace, left his throne and went down into the prisons to look for Peter shows you how disturbed and angry and frustrated Herod was that he himself would go. So sure enough, it says Herod searched for him and did not find him. He examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Now, why would he do that? Well, because if you're Herod and you have the lead Christian in jail, the lead guy, Peter, you know, the guy that walks on the water, that guy, and, and he's in jail, and he's bound with chains, and he's got soldiers all around him, and he's gone. In, Peter, in Herod's mind, only one of two things happened. A, they let him go. They just said, you know, go away. They let him go. Or B, they were all drunk. Like it's kind of impossible to think they were all sleeping. So he, in his mind, he'd think, oh, they're all drinking, they're all drunk, and he slipped away. So either way, in in Herod's mind, these guys deserve to be killed. So sure enough, he has them all executed. Now, when we start this next chapter, or next portion of the chapter, what we see here is Herod is enraged. He's furious. This guy is out of control in his anger because of what happened with Peter. Now, remind you, when he put James to the sword, it says that it pleased the Jews. This is back in verse um, 3. When he saw that it pleased Jews. Remember, he's in that difficult position where he has to keep the, the people happy to keep Rome happy. So when he killed James, all the people were like, yeah. Now, what do you think the people thought when they found out that Peter got away? When Peter got away, they would have been angry at herod they probably would have been a mob scene with herod herod had not only lost face by letting peter get away but they would have been a, there would have been a revolt and so now he's got this huge crowd that once was pleased with him now furious with him that the lead guy got away because if we hadn't killed him that would have been the end of the whole thing so herod is in this very difficult situation where he tries to please people But now the situation is much worse because Peter got away. So it says in verse 20 now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, or Sidon. Now, why he was angry with them, we don't know. So if you think of the Mediterranean here, okay, here's the Mediterranean, here's the Sea of Galilee, here's the River Jordan, here's the Dead Sea, okay? Mediterranean here. Tyre and Sidon were way up on the coast, but way up north, okay? And they're up in an area of Israel that was rugged. And so because of that, even from the days of Solomon, which was a thousand years earlier, they were always dependent upon the lower, more fertile lands to provide food for them. It was kind of like, we need the imports, we need the corn, we need the grain. And for whatever reason, Herod was mad at these guys up here. And his anger was probably because he was still ticked off that Peter got away. And it says in, in, in verse 19 that after he found that Peter got away, it says, then he went down to Judea to Caesarea. Okay, now so what is Caesarea? Caesarea is a city right on the coastline of the Mediterranean with these other two cities up the coast further. Caesarea was the cottage. It's where he went away to get away. So Jerusalem, dirty, dusty, hot. Caesarea has the beautiful coastal beaches. It has the beautiful breeze. And his grandfather, Herod the Great, said, what a great place to build a cottage. And so he built a palace right in Caesarea. And when he built the palace, then everyone else said, well, we should be there too. And it kind of built into a larger city over the years, and the Romans put a garrison there. But, But Caesarea is where... You go when you're mad and you want to get away from everybody, get out of the city, go to the cottage and hide and go sit on the beach. And so when Herod saw that Peter got away, he's like, I'm getting out of here. And he went to Caesarea. And obviously his anger was seething. Now whatever happened to these two cities up north, we don't know. But the fact is he was mad at them. Now they're in a difficult position, these, the people of these two cities, because they were like, well, Herod's really upset. Like Herod is really, really mad. Um, he's cut off our food. And what are we going to do? If without food, we're going to die. And they're like, you go talk to Herod. I'm not going to go talk to Herod. You go talk to Herod. I'm not going to go talk to Herod. Right? Send Blattis, you know. And so what they did here, is, as it says here, now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and he came to them, uh, and they came to him with one accord, having persuaded Blattus. What a name, eh? Blattus. Blattus, the king's chamberlain. And they asked for peace. So what happened is the people said, you know, I don't want to go, Herod's in a really bad mood. He's like in a really, really bad mood. I don't want to go talk to him. He's, he'll kill us. So they hired this guy, probably they bribed this, this chamberlain, this, this guy that, that you know, worked in the courts named Bladys. And they said to him, you go and talk on our behalf and try to calm him down a bit and, Try to say something sweet to him and try to tell him, you know, nice words and help us to, you know, be forgiven for whatever we did, we don't know. But so that he'll reinstate the food to our cities. And so that was going on. But you can still see Herod's anger. So with one accord having persuaded Bladus, the king's Jerusalem, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. That was those two cities up north. On the appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes and took a seat upon the throne and delivered an oration to them. Uh, In other words, in fact, this event is actually recorded in non-biblical history. Josephus, who is a Jewish historian, actually writes about this event just because it was a historical event. So... But even so, what happened was, while they were in the beach city of um, Caesarea, all the people gathered. Now, as they gathered, they, I'm sure, walked up to Herod and they said, look, Herod's in a really bad mood, okay? The Christians got away somehow, we don't know, he's mad at the cities of the north. (sighs) Be really nice to Herod, and just kind of butter him up, and you know, do whatever we have to do, but just keep him happy. Just tell him whatever he needs to hear, but just, you know, make him, make him happy, because we don't want him any angrier than he is now. He'll kill us all. So Herod comes in. He sits down in his court in the city of Caesarea, and all the people that were gathered around him, I'm sure people from the north, people from Judea, people, but they were all Jewish people, okay? They weren't Romans. They would have been, Herod himself, a follower of of Judaism, um, they all would have been Jewish people around him. And they're like, keep the guy happy. Like, whatever he wants, just nod your head and smile and say okay. Herod gets up and he gives a speech. And when the people, verse 22, and the people were shouting, because, you know, they don't want to get them mad, so tell them something really nice. And the people were shouting, "The voice of a god, not a man." And immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms. I love how the Bible throws that in, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Now you sit there, go, "What was all that about?" Well first of all, you, again, they're, they're standing in, in Herod's presence and they're terrified and, and they know he's in a bad mood and they need him they need to butter this guy up because they need food and he's already been and so Herod gives a speech and all the Jewish people said oh, the voice of a God. And as soon as they said that, Herod goes, Ooh, boom. Now, first of all, it wasn't the compliment that killed Herod, okay? So Pastor Tim walks in here and you go, Pastor Tim, you're the best pastor in the whole world. Boom, boom. Okay, so he's not going to fall over dead if you exaggerate that he's the best pastor in the whole world, okay? So when he comes back, tell him he's the best pastor in the whole world, okay? And don't worry, he's not going to die. But the comment they gave to him wasn't what caused Herod to die. It was because of what Herod did with that compliment. Now, notice the compliment. They did not say to Herod, Herod, you are God. No, that's not what they said. Look what they said. They said to Herod, the voice of a God. Look, these are not, the, these are not the, the, the Romans. These are not the Greeks. They don't believe in Zeus and, and you know, Apollos and all those other, these, you know, These are Jews. They are not polytheistic. They do not believe in multiple gods. So why would they then say to Herod, who at least was a follower of Judaism himself, that you are a god, and these are the Jewish people that are saying that. Why would they say that? And what actually caused Herod to die here? Well, okay, so let's back up a bit. When Herod's grandfather, Herod the Great, came into what was by 35 BC, the rubble of Jerusalem, because by then the Romans had come in and desolated it, and the Greeks had come in, and all sorts of occupying Gentile nations had been through the land during those 400 years. Herod the Great came in as, as himself a Herodian, a member of the land of Eden, which is the southern part of Israel, um, and he wanted to rebuild Jerusalem. So he rebuilt the outer walls, And in the process of rebuilding the outer walls, he also rebuilt the temple. And he built the temple back to exactly what it was when Jesus went into it and cast the, the people out. But right next door to the temple, Herod the Great, this guy's grandfather, built himself a palace. Right inside the city walls, right next to the temple, there was Herod's palace. So when this Herod, who inherited his grandfather's home inside the city walls that his grandfather built, Every time he got up in the morning, he would, I smell something burning. Oh, it's the neighbors and their sacrifices, you know. He could smell the sacrifices. Every day he got up, he could hear the crowds next door chanting and singing and doing all the things that they did in the temple. He was fully aware of all of the duties inside the temple next door, as well as him being at least a God-fearer, He had a a fear of God, and he was a practicing Jewish person. He knew what the festivals were. He knew what the sacrificial system was. He knew all the Jewish practices, and it was a daily reminder to him because it was the next-door neighbor. It was the temple right next to his palace, and so he smelled the smoke. He heard the the singing. He heard the trumpets of the priests. He was well aware of it. So when the other Jewish people in Caesarea desiring to keep this guy happy because he was in such a furious state, they declared, Herod, you are a god. What is it that caused him to die? Well, the answer is this. Herod not only heard the compliment, he embraced the compliment. And more than that, he took it upon himself. He accepted that compliment. He said, yes, I am. Now, again, we're not talking about Jews or Hindus or anyone else who had multiple gods. But within the Hebrew language, right back in Genesis and creation, we have that wonderful statement, let us make man in our image. One of the Hebrew names for God is Elohim in Hebrew, which is plural. So even though the the, the Jewish people at that time did not have the full concept of what we call the, the doctrine of the Trinity, they understood that in some sense God who is one, God who is spirit, has a plurality amongst them. And Herod understood that. So when the people said, you are a God, and Herod took that compliment and embraced it, what was Herod actually doing? He was stating, I truly am one of the members of the Trinity. In fact, I believe what Herod was in essence doing was saying, I am the one to whom the temple pointed to. I am the one to whom the people bring lamb sacrifices to. I am the Messiah. And so he, when he took that compliment and embraced it and accepted it as his own, he was in essence claiming to be, yes, I am the anointed one. I am the Messiah. Now, what does God do with that? The Lord sits and you would say, the Lord didn't do anything when they killed James. James. Like they killed James and the Lord didn't send lightning bolts. Poor guy, he was, he was killed. But now, when Herod claims to be one of the members of the plurality of God and probably in essence the Trinity, God the Father steps in and says, no, no. It was you who crucified Jesus for claiming the same thing. And now you're claiming it upon yourself? Uh, No. No way. And as soon as Herod accepted that praise of taking glory away from God and giving it to himself, it says this. I love this. And immediately, the angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give glory to God. It wasn't just simply because he did not say, oh, no, 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 no. In Acts 14, a couple chapters later, we'll find that Peter, when, he, when they said that he was a god, he's, or sorry, Paul, they said no. But it was because he was claiming to be divine. He was claiming to be one of the members of the Trinity. And immediately the angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give glory to God, and he was eaten by worms. I love that. You know, it's just kind of like why does God put that in there? Why couldn't he say he got high cholesterol and slowly he didn't feel well and you know you know, you know. but no, he was eaten by worms now, now somebody had to sit there and look at him and go, Ooh, my goodness, he got eaten by worms I mean he had to look he, hey, they had it had to be obvious right you know to, to document this it had to be. Obvious that there were worms coming out of his ears or nose or something. It was yuck. But the reason it is here, the reason the Spirit of God puts that text in here is because of this. They wanted it fully understood. This is not just the guy's having an indigestion or he's choking on a fish bone or whatever. They want it understood. You have claimed divinity and you have insulted God Almighty. And we want everyone to know this is the judgment of God. Make no mistake of it. This is not, you're not feeling well and you're going to eventually die, but rather this is, boom, this is God's judgment being put upon you immediately. Now, when I read this, I think, it's so amazing to see the authority of God. See, when the Lord wanted the people in that room to recognize, I am God Almighty and this guy is not, he immediately killed him in such a dramatic way that there could be no mistake that everybody in that room went, oh my goodness, oh my goodness, did you just see that? But what is so amazing about this is that God who created the heavens and the universe wanted to exercise his total dominion by causing little worms inside the gut of Herod to bow down before his throne and to do his bidding. Isn't that awesome. It wasn't just random fluke that the worms ate him up. But somehow even the littlest microbes within the stomach of Herod, even these little worms, literally bowed before the throne of the Almighty and said, Yes, Lord, and they're the ones that God used to kill him. It wasn't lightning from heaven. It was God exercising his dominion over all of creation by using the smallest thing to make it so obvious that Herod was taking glory away from him. Now, when I sit and read that, I'm going to make the wild assumption here. Hopefully it's not too wild, but that there's nobody in this room claiming to be divine, okay? No one here is saying, I'm a member of the the Trinity, okay? I'm going to make that assumption. However, however, you and I as believers in Christ have to watch ourselves that we do not commit the exact same thing ourselves. You're like, what? Anytime I take glory or credit for anything God does, and try to take it away from the throne of God and pin it on me like a medal and say, oh, look what I did for the Lord. Anytime I take glory away from God and try to give it to myself, I'm doing the exact same thing Herod did. I'm doing the exact same thing. Anytime I say, Lord, the church needs me, or I'm so indispensable, or if it wasn't for me, nothing would ever get done. Anytime you take glory away from the Almighty God and think that somehow God needs you or that you are a participant with Him to achieve something you're doing the exact same thing. Now look, <laughs> I do it all the time, I have to catch my voice and, because I, I, the other day, yesterday, I'm, I'm walking down, I live in the country so I walk down our road in the morning, take the dog for a walk and I'm praying out loud and I say these words, I said, Lord, what are we going to do today? And I go, what? what do you mean, what are we going to do? As if I do 80% of the labor and God is kind of like my protein drink. I need to drink down and he'll do the rest. He'll kick in and give me energy and strength to do the rest. No. God's not just simply an add-on to my work to make it successful. You know, I think if, if I believe in evangelism, I believe the power of evangelism, but I always say, look, God doesn't need me. God doesn't need me at all. In fact, for God Almighty to use me, it just seems so ridiculously stupid. If I was the Lord, I'm not saying that in the wrong way, but if, 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 if I wanted to see Smith Falls come to Christ, why doesn't the Lord just put a whole bunch of angels flying right now, big wings, flapping over the town, blowing trumpets? Do you think that would get everyone's attention? But... He uses you. Why? You're the most ineffective person to do it. And so am I. It would be a lot more effective if God had angels surround the town and blow trumpets. Everybody would look up and say, oh, yes. But the reality is, Christ didn't die for the angels. They have no concept of redemption, but you do. And so God desires to use I and you and I for, to do his bidding. And we have nothing to take credit for in the work of grace. So let me just tell you really quick. I'm going to tell stories. A year ago, I applied for a job as, an, as a chaplain in a denomination, a large denomination, and so then I talked to them and talk, 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 talk. Anyway, they sent me the application form, and they, it was the typical stuff: blah, 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 blah. Typical stuff, filling it all out. And then I get down to this question in the application form, and here was the question: the question was. How many people have you led to the Lord in this last year? I sat and looked at it and went, what? How many people, this was the question on the application form, how many people have you led to the Lord in the past year? I'm like, why would they ask that question? What are? They, what's their thinking? You led eight, but I led nine, therefore I'm more godly than you are? You led eight, I led nine, therefore I deserve the job and you don't? Yeah, like, why would you even ask that sort of a question? Is if somehow the higher the number, the more godly you are? And I know right well that the vast majority of times it's the dear grandmother praying for the child and I just happen to be there at the right time to share the gospel, but it's not, I don't take credit for the grace of God. Why would you ever think that somehow a number indicates any level of maturity? It's ridiculous. So, being snotty, because I can be snotty sometimes, I wrote on the application form, I have never led anyone to the Lord. However, I have faithfully shared the gospel at every opportunity given to me by the gospel, by the Lord. In other words, my job is to sow the seed. Sow, 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 sow. I'm not the Holy Spirit. I don't take credit for someone coming to Christ. I'm not, it's the Holy Spirit who convicts. It's the Holy Spirit who enlightens. It's the Holy Spirit who who gives faith. It's the Holy Spirit that allows them to understand the word of God. Where is, where is there room for me to say, Lord, look at me, I did something great for you. That sort of egotism and pride is exactly what Herod did. You're taking glory away from the Holy Spirit and you're giving it to yourself like, I did something great for God. I'm more spiritual than you are. That's horrific. There's an old saying that I like. It says, I believe as a Calvinist, I I preach as an Arminian. (laughs) In other words, I just sow the seed to everybody. Just let it go. Throw out the gospel. Let the Lord do his job. Sow the seed, but I believe that God will do his sovereign work. But at the same time, sow the seed. But how dare you and I Think in any way that God needs you or that you can take credit for the work of God in your life. Watch your prayers. Watch your language. Watch your theology. And say, Lord, you don't need me, but by your grace you desire to use me. And I give all the glory to you for who you are and for what you've done for me. If we don't live like that, we tread on very dangerous ground. So that's how God responded to Herod. But then God responds to the church. So it goes on, and it says this. But, this is verse 24, but the word of God increased and multiplied. Here's God responding again. Now people too easily say, well, whenever there's persecution, the gospel grows. No, There's persecution in North America right now and the church is hiding. The church is shutting up. The church doesn't say a word because we're afraid we're gonna get persecuted or criticized or lose our job or people think negative on us on Facebook. That's not the reason why the gospel grew. The gospel grew because when there was great persecution the Christians stood up. Now when Peter got released from jail I'm sure that the praying church went, oh, wow, our prayers really work. That's that's exciting. But when the word went out that Herod was eaten by worms, something that had to be very obvious, they left Caesarea and they went back to their regions and they went, oh my goodness, you, you wouldn't have believed what happened to Herod when he cursed God. What, 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 what? There is a God in heaven. And when he claimed to be, when Herod claimed to be Jesus, he immediately died. There must be power with this guy. And so the, the excitement and the, 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 the enthusiasm of the reality of the gospel is what caused the church to grow. God blessed when the church became excited having seen the power of a living God. That's why the gospel is so effective other regions right now. So I said, I, the last couple of years I was chaplain at Queen's University. I had a, cha- a church on campus. We had about 200 kids on a Sunday morning. The only white kids were my three girls. Everybody else were Asians. The entire auditorium, we rented one of the big halls on Queen's University, the entire auditorium were Asian students. Why? Because I'd walk into the Ark, which is the, the athletic center. I, walk, I remember walking there one day, and here are all my kids, all my, my, I call them my kids. And they're just moving from table to table among the students, witnessing and sharing the gospel. And I walked up to one of the, one of the girls, and I said, what are you doing? She goes, oh, we all got together and thought we were going to go witness today. I'm like, oh, my goodness. You're putting us all to Shame. Because these Asian students were coming to Canada as exchange students, getting saved on campus, and then had such excitement in their face, they were just exploding. It's not the white kids, unfortunately, at Queens who are out drinking and partying. It's the Asian kids on campus who are doing the incredible work of the gospel at Queens University. And and it just was amazing but because they saw the reality of Christ in their lives coming out of a very uh, communist country and seeing the freedom of Christ, they, they just moved forward. Now look, when I read this passage, I say, does God do this today? Because whenever we interpret the book of Acts, we have to be careful because the book of Acts is the book of transition not always the norm for the church. The norm for the New Testament church is the epistles. You know, Paul's writings, Peter's writings, John's writings. The the, the epistles are kind of the the blueprint for the church as a norm, but the book of Acts is a book of transition. They're coming out of the time of the apostles They're moving into the time of the churches. So you have to be very careful as to how you interpret the book of Acts, that you don't take a verse out of context and say this is the norm for today, okay? so when you read this, you go, does God still do that today? Does God still, you know, strike people down? Yeah. Is God's sovereign choice? Yeah. But does God still cause the church to explode and multiply? And I'm going to say this to you. He can. But unfortunately, very few people, very few churches want to serve God to such an extent and be devoted to him to that extent that they allow God to respond in this way. So when I left, for the last year, i have been wandering around looking for a church to attend. I went to a church in Kingston led by a pastor who graduated from Westminster Theological Seminary. I thought, oh, I sat in that congregation for four months and he never once opened his Bible. Not once. Week after week, week. Not once even opened the Bible or taught of the Bible. I was like, this is ridiculous. Trying to find a church where they're preaching the Bible is just, what's going on? So let me just say this to you because I'm going to be blunt. There's one of the three options that's going to happen at this church. I've only been coming here about a month or so, a month and a half. There's one of three options that's going to happen to this church. Okay, Number one, you're going to carry on for a couple more years and you're going to close. That's, that's one option. Number two, you're going to be just another church in Smith Falls and there's already about eight of them out there and they're all going to be blah and you'll all be the same and blah, 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 blah Swiss LA or whatever. And you could pick up the sign out front and shift them all around and nobody would ever notice. And this church is a little little more music. But in reality, you're just going to be another church in the pot and it's not going to make any difference whatsoever. And unfortunately, that's where a lot of churches are at. The third option is you're going to make an incredible mark for Jesus Christ in this entire region. And it doesn't happen magically. It's not going to be the result of pastor Tim or anyone else it's going to be the result where you guys and this church has determined that we're serious about our faith this is what God responded to the reason the word of God went forward and multiplied was because God looked down and saw that group of people on fire for the truth and they he saw that they were serious now let me just tell you this when I looked at all those Asian students that are, many of my students went back to China as missionaries. They came from secular families, they got saved on campus, they got discipled, I baptized them, and they went back to China as missionaries, unbelievable. But because they had, they were serious about their faith. So there's, there's no fourth option you're either gonna close, or you're just gonna become one of the other typical blah blah blah, and it's not gonna make any real difference at all. Or you're gonna get serious about this. Serious. And if you're serious, God who responds is gonna step in and he's gonna do something amazing with you. And how do I know that? There's a great verse I memorized, 2nd Chronicles 16, 9. Mark that in your Bible, 2 Chronicles 16, 9, which says this. The eyes of the Lord search to and fro throughout the earth to find those whose hearts are fully committed to him. I mean, God can't find many believers who really are committed to him. He's searching diligently for a church who says, Lord, we're serious. We're not goofing around. We're not just meeting on Sunday morning because there's nothing else happening. There's no soccer practice. There's no hockey. Therefore, we might as well go to church. That's not serious. You don't wing your Sunday morning services. You don't wing it. You put prayer and time and effort into presenting God because God Almighty deserves our best. And we have to be serious about this or we're, you know, people are going to come in these doors and go, no, that's just another church, typical church, and they're going to leave. And I don't blame them. You have to become serious. And people come into the church; they need to say, "Wow, what's different about what's different about this church?" And they're going to say, there's, "They're really serious. The music, the, the prayers, the preaching. I really sense the power of God on Sunday morning, and then through the week, they're small. Group, they're serious. There's an old hymn." that says, Lord, let there be revival, but let it begin first with me. In other words, don't say, okay, yeah, that sounds a great idea, let's become serious. And then you're living a life with a whole bunch of private sins that nobody knows about. You're never going to be serious. This church is never going to be serious when there's no spiritual accountability from among one another. That's the power of small groups. This church is never going to move forward and be used of God. I'm just telling you this. I'm just telling you from my life experience. It's not going to happen. Unless you say, Lord, use me to do something great for your kingdom. And all those things that only you know about, Lord, those private sins that I hide, the things I do on the internet, the pornography I view, or the, the gossiping I have, or the critical nature I have, Lord, i got to give it all up. And i got to get serious with you. Because if that doesn't happen... You're just in church number nine in the list of how many there others there are, and that's going to be the end of it. I'm just telling you that. But God is a God who responds, and so when it says here, the word of God increased and multiplied. God can do that, and desires to find a church that is willing to do that today. There's no magical formula. There's no program you have to add to your church for this to happen. Stop trying to be a and there's so many churches that are just goofy. They're just goofy churches. They're just like little circuses that run. All we need to do is get back to the word of God and let the Lord know, Lord, we're serious on our faith. We believe the power of the almighty God who can move a, m- a worm inside of a man can change my heart back to where it should be for you. And Lord, there's so much garbage in my life that nobody knows about but you, Lord. I need to confess that and deal with it. Because it isn't going to happen if if I'm the stumbling block. Be serious. Come to church with an anticipation to worship. Use your service of this church. I'm on the schedule, therefore I have to go to church. No, 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 no. no. I come to church because God is worthy to be worshipped. And worthy to be praised. When the Lord sees that commitment in you, he will step in and use this fellowship, this church, to do great things for his kingdom. I guarantee you that, because that's what the Word of God teaches. So you got three options. Close down, become mediocre. Mediocre, 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 mediocre. I'm you know what, I'm tired of mediocre churches. I'm tired of them. Or let's do something great for the kingdom of God. All right, let's pray.